Well, there's a story of a retiring couple who decided they were going to build their dream house. And they bought land and from a developer and a community, and they were going to build this dream house. And one of the engineers before they came said, hey, look, we got a topographical map, but it only goes back a certain amount of years. Do you want to go further back and look at old topographical maps of the neighborhood just to make sure where we're building is good? The guy said, no, man, we, we, we want to build our home now. And so they continued to build. They built their dream home, and then they signed on the dotted line, went through the punch list, as you do when you build a new house, and moved in. Moved in, enjoyed some time in their home. Uh, and about year, end of year one, they started noticing some doors and windows that were sticking. Well, they started noticing even more so that there were cracks that appeared on the tile and the walls. This is after they signed on the dotted line and the punch list and the warranty for the house was over after a year. But something was really, really wrong with this house. So they hired another engineer, and they learned some devastating news. They learned from this engineer that the old topographical maps revealed that this house had been constructed in what was once a ravine where water would come through, and the developer, we got some developers here, it's okay, and the developer had just laid dirt on top of it, but what was happening was there was still a creek down the way that was bringing water through this neighborhood, and so that water was coming underneath their house and many other houses and pulling dirt and soil away underneath the foundation of this home. It was a total loss for this family. It couldn't be repaired. It had to be sold. You know, when I think about that story, I think about the things in our lives that we often choose not to deal with that fester and grow in our own lives. And slowly but surely in our own lives, the soil erodes away and cracks begin to show up in our own lives. When I think about our own private lives of the mind and the soul that we're not dealing perhaps with sin struggles in our lives and then they become very apparent. When I think about our families and the sins that fester in our families and we take the Instagram family shot and everything is perfect but there's junk within and we won't deal with it. The devastation that can cause in the end. When I think of the workplace and all the financial backdooring where companies cook the books and ignore the problem within, see also Enron. And I think of many churches, sadly, that would rather turn a blind eye to the things going on underneath the foundation. And the leaders in churches who would rather turn a blind eye of things inside of a church and just blaze ahead because the mission of God and the things of God are too important that we fear losing what we have. I want to show you as we turn today to this passage in Nehemiah. I want to show you this internal problem that Nehemiah seemingly doesn't know about that creeps up from within, from underneath, what's going on with the people of God, one with one another. It's an internal problem, and Nehemiah finds out about this problem today very abruptly when we come to this text. What will he do about it? He's the leader. Will he turn a blind eye 
because he's got a mission and a task to pursue, will he continue just to be task-oriented, or will he care for the people of God who are being exploited by the people of God? That's a temptation as a leader in any realm, whether it's your family or workplace or in the church or in your home. It's a temptation to say, focus on the task at hand and the mission at hand and turn a blind eye to the problems within and not deal with them. And yet they will fester and they will create something greater that is often devastating. Perseverance, what we're going to look at today. We've seen perseverance from the outside. Remember, they're building this wall. They've gone from exile in Babylon, ruled by the Persians, and Nehemiah's gotten permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall that is torn down. It's been torn down for 140 years. They've already come before him with Ezra, and they've rebuilt the house of God for worship. But a wall in a community, a wall in Jerusalem would protect them would protect them for the worship of God and protect their families in the city of Jerusalem where God's name was meant to be made great in that day. And so we're going to see this morning the enemy within. The enemy within that could be the enemy within for us as well. What do we do about it? As you turn there to Nehemiah chapter 5, it's page 401 in the Bible next to you if you need it. Today we're pretty abruptly going to see what festering problems and sin festering with the people of God looks like as they build. And here's the specific problem. The specific problem is they're working on the wall, but there are those, the haves are basically taking advantage of the have-nots, the people that are doing all the work on the wall. There's financial greed coming down for the people who are actually doing the work on the wall. They are taking advantage of the, their own brethren, their own saints that are amongst them as they work on the wall for their own personal gain. So how will Nehemiah deal with this? How will he respond to this? How will the people who are the, effectively the perpetrators of this greedy gain respond to Nehemiah? And how will the people who've been perpetrated against respond to them? Will they be able to continue the work on the wall? That's the question. Turn with me to Nehemiah 5, and I'll start in verses 1 through 5, which really give you the problem. And we just kind of come into this text here and like, what's going on? I'll unpack it for you as we look. So Nehemiah 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Remember, the work is ongoing. They've had opposition from the outside Remember the Sanballat and Gershom, these four enemies that have come against them that were real chatty. They even uh, threatened physical violence. Imagine that, the enemies of God coming around Jerusalem to oppress and oppose the people of God working there. The more things change, the more things stay the same if you look around us. And so they've dealt with the external problem. They've dealt with the way that they feel about the threats and discouragement and fear, and now we're going to look at their own problems amongst them that they have. Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so it's a big family, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. They don't have enough grain. 
there were also those who said, we are having to mortgage our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get drained because of, note this, the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax, Artaxerxes from Persia's tax, on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh, it's kind of a progression, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons, look how awful this is, we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. The people of God are being exploited by the people of God. And your first point is just that God's people don't exploit God's people for their own personal gain. No, we care for the people of God amongst us, don't we? See this outcry. These are the people. The outcry comes, note in the text, it comes, it says, from the people, and it specifically lists the women and the families. And so you know this is a great outcry when it's not the men doing it, it's the women saying, we don't have enough food. Our husbands, and I think here's the picture, I think what's happening is their husbands are primarily the ones working on the wall. And so during the day, they're going... There's no, so they're not working. They're not working to make money. They're not able to go and pick the grain. And they don't have enough because there's a famine. So there's some contributing factors behind the scenes to this financial squeeze. You ever felt that? You feel that now in, a, in inflation? Whatever it is, 8%. When you have financial squeeze, there's a financial squeeze here. Because these people are working on the wall, it doesn't give them time to work. It doesn't give them time to go get grain. And so they don't have food, many of them. And those in this text that have property, that have vineyards, that have land, that have homes, to get grain, they're having to mortgage their land. They're having to put it up against that so that they can even have food. These are the people that are doing the work on the wall. They don't have food. They're mortgaging their properties. There's a famine. There's also a tax. So remember, we've said that Persia is a great superpower of the day, right? And they've conquered all of Israel and the whole region. They took over the Babylonians. And so, listen, the men who fought for King Artaxerxes and the Persian army didn't fight for free. And so the king in Persia had to raise money for what they did. And the places that they overtook and so there's a tax on all the people so they're being taxed even as they work so there's that there's a famine there's high tax from the king but there's also something else do you see it there it says the outcry wasn't against Persia the outcry wasn't against remember the enemies that were trying to stop the work Sanballat Tobiah all these guys that we've talked about the enemy wasn't on the outside. The tax wasn't on all the outside. The problem was Jewish brothers. And when you get down a couple more verses that we're going to read in a minute, you're going to see who those people are. They are the nobles. They are the Jewish officials and nobles. They're the people that have power and status and money. We think we see them back in chapter 3 when Robbie preached chapter 3 in the list of people not wanting to work. 
They're the people back in Ezra that actually were in cohort with the people of the land that were trying to get the work to stop in the rebuilding of the wall. These were Jewish officials, cream of the crop people who had power, didn't want to work, but wanted more power in their pockets than they did care for the people of God. Rather than the people of God come back and worship, they wanted to pad their wallets. And so they've been this festering, eroding problem all the way through. You just haven't really seen it like the house built on the sand. They're the problem. It's a problem from within. So it's God's people exploiting God's people for personal gain. You ever seen the movie Braveheart? There's like three movies that I use for like all kinds of illustrations. See the movie Braveheart and the nobles, the Scottish nobles? If you've ever watched that movie, you just, you just want to wring their neck. And, and historically, this is even pretty true of what, what the Scottish nobles do. Remember, big uh, England was next door with Edward I, Longshanks, the king. And rather than Scotland... Fighting for their freedom, the nobles who ran Scotland would barter with the king of England, King Longshanks, their own lands, their own gold, their own money, so that the Scottish people would continue to stay oppressed and suppressed. But along comes William Wallace, right? And he's willing to deal with the problem of the Scottish nobles, and eventually one of the nobles who's motivated and driven to free Scotland, Robert the Bruce, eventually frees Scotland, really, of the Scottish nobles, more than England. And their desire for personal gain and their willingness to exploit their own people over their people's freedom. You know, if you were to translate this a little bit, I, I thought this week about how to translate this to modern day, like these Jewish nobles exploiting excessive interest on the people of God, putting them in more than indentured servanthood, putting them in slavery. I mean, effectively, they're so, they're so much in debt that in that day you could, it was legal in that day to put you and your family for a season, for three years or seven years, or until the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament, an indentured servants to work off of a debt. That was legal in the law of God for a season, but the interest was so high, we think 50% on these people, it kept them under the thumb of these nobles, of these Jewish leaders, and so effectively, these children even were in constant slavery. There was no way of getting out of this. That's what was hidden from within. And when I think about the church today, what, that, what, what, what would this look like? What could this look like? And I don't know. Maybe there's someone who's an influencer or wealthy in a church or even an elder who sits in their ivory tower and they don't want to work, but they want to tell everybody else what to do. And maybe there's a poor family in a church that's like, we have high medical bills. I don't know how to pay this. Who's somebody in the church that would care for us and at, less, at least loan us some money that we could pay our bills and feed our family? And on the side, they go to this person, and this person in a church would say, 
yeah, I'll give you money. I'll give you money for food and different things, but I need 50% interest. What you going to do with that guy in the church? I, I give you 50% interest. And, and once that didn't go well and he got further and further in debt, that family was like, and the guy comes to him and says, well, how about I just take the house and you mortgage the house against the food and the things that you need? And they get further and further in. How about your kids come over and mow my yard and clean my house? What you thinking about that person? We're going to deal with that, aren't we, in the church? But that is a kind of modern day picture of how awful that scenario would have been. The very people that were doing the work on the wall to restore it are the very people being exploited and taking advantage of the people that are sitting on the sidelines because they have status and wealth and power. Rough. Rough stuff. But here's a question. You might be asking, well, is, is interest wrong? I mean, I'm in finance and we charge interest to people. Is that a wrong thing? Is, is, is it wrong uh, to charge interest to people on their home loan? It's interesting because God's law, which they would have been living under, they would have known the laws that they were living under in God's word. So what does God's word say to the people of God then? I'm going to take you to a little devotional in Leviticus for a second. Anybody hang out in Leviticus? I know you do. Not. Leviticus chapter 25. This is a great text. It spells it out. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 23, it spells it out as well. For the people of God, with the people of God, you could not charge interest. A personal loan, you could not charge interest. It was as clear as day in the word of God for the Jewish people with the Jewish people. You could loan them money. You could exert a tax or an or interest for a foreigner, somebody outside, but it was a low interest rate, not a 50% interest rate. So look at Leviticus chapter, stay away from me, chapter 25 and verse 35. It, it, this is as clear as day. If your brother becomes poor and he cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger or a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take how much interest? No interest. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. We're going to see that again. That your brother may live beside you, not in subjection to you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. That's what was happening. I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. What he's saying is, I've given you everything. You are a steward of all the things you have. How can you take and make a profit off what is actually mine? This is what, you, this is what God is saying here. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, remember indentured servanthood was okay. That seems very foreign to us. You shall not make him serve as a what? Slave which is what they were doing. They were enslaving people. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And that's when the debts were made free. You're not bound to that anymore. He shall go out from you and he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to his possessions and his father. You're caring for people in need. That's what's happening here. 
You're meeting them where their need is in the, in the household of faith. For they are my servants, verse 42, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. Remember, here's again, God is saying they're my people. They're not yours, they're my people. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear, here it is again, fear your God. Clear as day, they know what they're doing. They're doing it underneath what's going on with the wall. And maybe you say, man, I would never do something like that. And I, I, and I believe you. Never do something like that. But let me ask you, what will, what will we do when we're squeezed with our finances? What will we withhold when we are in a squeeze in finances for the people of God, for those who are in need? What will we do when the desire for more that shiny thing that you want, when the desire for more creeps in and captures our heart, are we willing to do what we want to do to get what we want financially and maybe we don't care who we have to run over to get it? What does that look like, fellows at work? Are you willing to run over other people, ladies too, at work for your own personal gain? Maybe it doesn't look like this. But what are we willing to do in a financial squeeze? What are we willing to do? What is the God of our hearts? Consider that. And also consider Jesus. Consider who he is and what he's done for us. See, he came to give himself for us. People who have a great debt. People who are in need. He didn't take advantage of us. He didn't exploit us. He took the debt off of us and put it on himself and died on a cross for our sins. He didn't come to take. He didn't come to exploit. He came to free us from our sin. And not only that, as Jesus' church, over and over and over again, what do we see? We don't exploit one another. We care for the needs of the saints as Jesus has cared for us. Remember Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the church begins and they're sitting there reading the word of God and sharing and explaining it and having fellowship and food together. The Bible says that they were sharing with all who had need. And later it says if somebody had need for food, they took care of it. If somebody needed some, a place to be, even land, they would give to one another. That's not a government program. That's the body of Christ caring and sharing with one another because they love Christ and been affected by Christ and they freely give. That's Jesus' church. And as leaders, I think the implication in this text, if you're a leader in our church, you're an elder or a deacon or a community group leader, there's some implication here, isn't there, for leaders in within the people of God that we don't lord over people with what they have or what they don't have. That we don't use people as First Peter 5 would say to elders or shepherds. That we don't use people for our own, and here's the words that it used, sordid gain. But we're under shepherds. Jesus is under shepherds who care for the flock. 
heavy stuff. God's people don't exploit God's people. God's people care for God's people. But how is Nehemiah going to take this news? Is he going to go William Wallace on him? How's he going to take this news? It looks like he hasn't, hasn't heard this news yet. He's the leader, and stuff's been going on underneath the surface of the house, if you will. How is he going to respond to this news of exploitation of his own people, the people that are doing the work? Look at how he responds. Verse 6. Let me read verse 6 through 13. I was very angry. How about that? I was very angry when I heard of their outcry and those words. I took counsel with myself. I think he's praying probably to God too, as he's done before. And I brought charges, and here's where you find out who actually it is, against the nobles and officials. These are the Jewish brothers that you see in verse 1. And I said to them, you are exacting interest from your brother. Remember Leviticus? We don't do that. And I held a great assembly. So he doesn't do this deal privately. Do you notice that? He gathers all the people. And he, the reason he gathers all the people is because all the people are experiencing this problem from the nobles and the officials. And so the breadth of the problem needs to be addressed amongst all. So he gathers everybody. This is uncomfortable, but he does it. Against them, and he said to them, we are as far as we are able, have bought back the Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you, you sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They've already been in exile. They've already been enslaved. And the, in exile, in effectively slavery under the Persian rule, you're doing it to one another. He points the sin out very clearly. Then they said, excuse me. Where are we at? Help me out. Calls them to the great assembly, calls them out. And then the next part says they were silent. They could say nothing because they were guilty. They're admitting that they're guilty. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Isn't that where we get when we're guilty? We ought to. We're not making excuses. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. That's the understatement of the year. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God? They're not walking in fear of God. They're walking in fear of what they won't have with money to prevent the taunts of the nations, meaning there's, this is a bad witness to the world around us. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. So the, the other leaders, Nehemiah including, are, are, are making up the difference. So these people have food. And he says this to them, let us abandon this exacting of interest, this sinful practice, usury, effectively. Return to them this very day their needs, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchids, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that they have, you have been exacting from them. And look at this. See, we would stop right there, wouldn't we? They need what's, they should get what's coming to them. Nehemiah doesn't do that. Look at it. We will restore, these are the nobles and the officials, we will restore those and require nothing of them. So there's repentance. 
We will do as you say, as I called the priest and made them swear to do as I have promised. So there are accountability for these guys. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and labor if he does not keep these promises. So now he's talking to all. There's fear amongst all to go, hey, are we complicit? We ought not do that. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. So is Nehemiah willing, is he willing to take courage and go, I don't care if they're nobles, I don't care if they have power, I don't care if they're wealthy, I don't care what happens to me, I'm willing to step in to that ring with those guys and call them to account. He does. Here's your point. Godly leaders, leaders, disciplined leaders even, for grievous sins against God's people. Leaders, godly leaders, have to be willing to look at their own, in a sense, and go, you're not above being disciplined. You're not above being called out. But you see his response. He doesn't lash out at them. As a matter of fact, he's willing to step into that space. But he not only calls them out, what is he doing? He's even willing to restore those Saul Goodmans, effectively, these kind of lone shark guys. He's willing to call them out, but he's also willing to restore them. You see that? Are you willing to do that with people? I don't know if I would be. Be like, you're gone. I'm going William Wallace on you. He's willing to restore God's people. Isn't that the grace of God in our lives? Whether it's financial or other, that's the beauty of the gospel. This is what God does with our sin. He takes it on, no matter what it is. He exposes it, and he deals with it. And we're silent, hopefully, before him and repent, and he restores us. Nehemiah, the great leader, is willing to press in, but he's also willing to restore these men. And not only that, he takes the opportunity before the whole assembly. And do you see those, that phrase there? He uses it a couple of times, shake out. When our kids were really little, my dad did this to me too. Remember when you, if you have a little boy at least, and they're in the sand pit, and they're like two, and you're like, it's time to go, and you're looking at them, and you can't see all the sand, but you know it's coming, and you know it's going to get in your car. I used to do this. I don't know if this is being recorded. I don't know how you feel about that. But I grab him, like, all right, lay down, buddy. And I grab his feet, and I would hold him by his feet, and I would just shake him. He kind of liked it. Just close your eyes, shake him. Just shake them out. Shake all the sand out before you go. And maybe when they get a, a little bit older, maybe they're going to community group. Maybe they're going somewhere and they haven't learned that uh, the other kids' toys aren't theirs. Ever had that situation? Where the other, and they take it and it's in their pockets. And they come home with it and that's a little pattern. You have to kind of work through that. And what do you say after you know that's been a little problem when they come home? Empty your that's what Nehemiah is doing with the people. He takes opportunity to empty the pocket and say, if any of us are guilty, we need to be shaken out. We want to be right before God as we do God's work. You know, there's an interesting parallel, I think, in the scriptures, in the New Testament scriptures to this. When you, when you come to Matthew 18, Jesus gives maybe what I, I think maybe that I can find in the scriptures, the only like step-by-step -step process of doing something, and it's church discipline. And you think church discipline, and you think about the person you might know that got kicked out of the church, or maybe got, and it's a, 
for some people that sounds like a terrible thing, but the, the purpose of church discipline is not just to kick somebody out of the church. The purpose of church discipline is so that sin comes to the surface. After sin comes to the surface, that there is a repentance of sin and a return and a restoration. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing in this passage He's calling these guys out for their sin that's affected the whole people of God that would have affected the work. This would have been a strike. This would have been a work strike. They would have continued to work under these conditions, nor should they. And he's willing to call them out, but also, and they come too, they're silent. They return stuff. The things that they stole, they returned. And then he takes the opportunity. And if you've ever been, sadly, been in a church where there is church discipline, and it goes from, hey, go make it right with your brother, and the brother doesn't, or sister doesn't come back, and then you take two. This is what Jesus says to do. And if they repent, it's over. If they don't, tell it to the church. Tell it to the leadership. If they don't, tell it to the whole church. Kick the person out. Here's what happens here. You don't get to the end of church discipline here. You see restoration, and it's a beautiful thing. That's why at the end of this process, all the people say amen. All the people praise God that we've dealt with the sin within, and it's a warning and fear of God. Do you see that? And that's what God does with us in the gospel. He calls us from where we're at. I know we don't think we're the nobles in this text. I know we don't think we're the officials, but before him we are. That's who we are. And he calls us out. And he calls us to repentance. And he restores us. And you know what, that's salvation and it changes the playing field for us. But you know what sanctification is like as well? The living out of the Christian life, you know what it's like as well? It's a similar pattern, different but similar pattern. It's I'm in sin, maybe financial, maybe other. There's repentance. We come before the Lord, and there's restoration and fellowship again. That's what sanctification is as well, right? What does that look like in your life? Can I ask you this morning, can I just press in a little bit and ask you rhetorically, what needs to be shaken out in your life this morning? As a church, what needs to be shaken out in our lives, in our church? It's a dangerous question to ask, but it's a beautiful thing when there's restoration, when God redeems what is wrong. Nehemiah has been stepping into some really hard leadership, really hard leadership task here of stepping into that kind of space. So here's the question. How's Nehemiah's tax return? Anybody seen it? How's his contribution statement at the end of the year for church? How about him? How does he do with his financial dealings? I mean, he's the one meeting out, in a sense, the discipline here. How's he doing? We come to the text in verse 14, and Nehemiah gets a promotion. And what happens when you get a promotion? Sometimes there's extra privileges. Sometimes there's extra things that you didn't have before. It's a kind of a time of temptation. Look at it. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the governor, he's gone from being a cupbearer to a builder, and it looks like here, most people think it's here, after he's gone through all this in the work, that he becomes the governor. They're privileged to being the governor, 
He's now the governor in the land of Judah in the 20th year. That's when they came in. So he's been working. Remember, this work took 52 days. So he's got a new role with new privileges from King Artaxerxes. Look at it. You just kind of see it, and I'll explain it. Neither do I or my brothers eat from the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them, from their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work of the wall. So the work of the wall continues now. And I acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there before the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men. Think about a party with 150 people you got to feed. Jews and officials besides those who came from us, from the nations that were around us. Because as a governor, you have to entertain. This is the food allowance. Now that was prepared at my, ex my expense. For each day was an ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. You know how much that would have cost? Yet, for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because, look at it, this is great, because the service was too heavy on the people because all the money that comes from the food allowance comes from them being taxed, the people of God who are working on the wall, the people of God who are suffering, the people of God who don't have food. Remember for my good, he's talking to God, oh my God, all I've done for this people. So not only do, not only do God's people not exploit God's people, not only do leaders sometimes have to discipline other leaders for grievous sin against God, God's people? God's leaders, God's leaders have to aim to practice what they preach, to live above reproach, if you will. The call of the godly man in the New Testament that the living a life of a, being above reproach here financially. These promotions, the food allowance, it was like the kings, if you, if you were a governor, you had like a per diem, and it was really high. You could eat whatever you want, the choice food, but you also had to entertain people, dignitaries, with that. And instead of choosing to take it, which he could have, it was permissible. It wasn't something that was, would have been wrong, but he chose not to do it because he cared for his people and he wanted to lead by example for his people, that his people would look at him and go, well, he's eating the king's choice food and we're sitting out here in the ditch without grain, giving our lives to build this wall and these guys are coming against us. It's not how he did it. You see that in the text? You see in the text where he didn't use a food allowance even for all these people if I could say it in today's vernacular, I would say it this way. Nehemiah rejected the swamp. Okay? He was the politician, the governor that rejected the swamp and said, nope, not doing it. I'd vote for him if he was running next year. He wasn't willing to do it. He was that kind of leader. He was above reproach. He led by example. He cared for his people. Paul talks about this in the New Testament as an apostle. And he says in 1 Corinthians, they're arguing about food they can eat or not eat. We really don't argue about food we can eat. We might argue, argue about drink. 
we don't really argue about food, but people were struggling if, if people could, could eat food sacrificed to idols because it had been in the market. And, you know, these Jews had a problem with meat, first of all, but they also, they also had a problem with the foods. The Gentiles had a problem with sacrificing the food to idols. Like, how can we eat that? It's been in this awful temple over here. And Paul says this. He says, all, thi- all these things are permissible for me, but they're not profitable, so I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to do it and come down to the end of the section in 1 Corinthians 10. And it says, because my witness is too important, I want God to be glorified more than I want to feed my flesh. And that's what you see Nehemiah doing here. Godly leaders practice and aim to practice what they pe- preach. They lead by example. They're above reproach. If I think about that in today's church, if you will, and I'm just trying to rightly apply this finances in a church, leaders of the church. How many people do you know, sadly, that look at the church and go, hey, I make money out in the business world in front of people because I want to make money. But you know what? I watch a lot of preachers in a lot of churches making a bunch of money, and they're just using religion to do that. So what's the difference? Why would I go participate in something like that? They're just wrongly using their religious practice to make money like I do in the workforce. You ever heard that from anybody? Maybe somebody you know that looks at the church and they're like, they're just in it for the money. You ever heard the name John Piper? Pastor, former pastor, retired, Bethlehem, Baptist up in Minneapolis. Ministry called Desiring God. Ever heard of that ministry? You ought to, you ought to go. um, You can go pilfer all their resources, because all their resources and their great resources are free on Desiring God. Free. Because rather than charging people for those resources, they've raised money so you can have all of them. I remember John Piper came a number of times. He had a couple of contacts in my former church. And he would co- I'd l- he'd come and preach like once a year. And then we had this huge crowd. I don't know why, you know. Guest preacher. And he would come, and one of his executive board guys would come with him. And we got time with these guys a little bit as pastors. A number of pastors would come together. And John Piper didn't say this. He wasn't going to talk about the money he made yearly. But one of his executives were talking about this kind of thing in the church. And he's like, y'all, John would like me telling you this, but he's taking the same salary. We can't pay him more. He won't take anything off the top from desiring God. It's his resources, basically. He won't take it. He's lived in the same house for 30 years. He won't take more, he won't take more salary. And every year we try to get him to take a little bit more salary. I mean, he lives in the area of Minneapolis where, like, where all the George Floyd stuff was happening, all the riots. He's, I mean, he's been there a long time, so the, the neighborhood's gotten worse. He still lives in the same house. And if you ask him, he's like, I, I don't want there to be any stain in money that I would take more than I need for the gospel to be for perverted by the money that I make. I want you to contrast that with like a, a prosperity gospel preacher, a word of faith preacher. You know, there's a guy, and I usually don't do this, but there's a guy, but I will with this. There's a guy named Michael Smith. But that's not what he goes by. He goes by Creflo Dollar. 
He's a pastor and he's worth $30 million. Let me ask you a question. What kind of witness do you think Creflo Dollar, the pastor, who has $30 million and two planes, has with an onlooking world? Has with leaders even within the church compared to a man like John Piper? A man like John Piper who is careful that his witness is above reproach in the way that he lives. Two very different pictures of what it looks like in the church. No godly leaders are above reproach. And the truth is, we talk about leadership. We talk about leadership as influence. And there's all kinds of books written on influence. Charisma, etc., strategies. But if you really, as a Christian leader, want to have influence, it starts and really ends with your character. Are we living above reproach? And really, I think at the heart of this with Nehemiah is, are we generous? Whether we have a financial squeeze or not, are we able to be generous people? Are the people of God generous with caring for the needs of others, with caring for the needs of the church? Are we generous with what God has given us? I want to say this because this is important. If, if I just closed it down right now, you're like, man, I don't know if I can do all of that. And I would echo that. Listen, left to ourselves, left to ourselves, if we're honest, we're way more like the nobles and the officials. We're made way more, we're left to ourselves in a squeeze, we would be willing likely to exploit other people for our own, what we would say, needs or wants. Left to ourselves. That's who we are. Left to ourselves, we would look for our own personal gain. Left to ourselves, we wouldn't keep be willing to keep others in check for what they're doing to the people of God because we're too scared of man. We live in fear of what that would look like. Left to ourselves, we really can't practice what we preach, can we? But Paul said it this way. I am what I am by the grace of God only. He also said this. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. And he also enables us to kind of get downwind of ourselves and say, who has a need? He enables us by his spirit as believers in Christ to see as he sees, to care as he cares. That's a beautiful gift that he gives us, the spirit in our lives to go, I'm going to move toward that need, not away from it. I'm willing to step into hard spaces as a leader, even with other leaders, if God's name is being harmed. I'm willing to do that because I don't need to fear God and fear man. I, I fear God. And while it's a daily struggle to practice what we preach, and that's the message if you're new to church, we're not saying we've got it all together. We're actually saying the opposite. We're saying we don't have it together, and God works in us to humble us, to get us to a place to admit that we're wrong, admit that we have need, and restores us, and that's why we serve, and that's why we're here. We're not here because we've got it together. Only the grace of God, you see, Jesus died, and he paid our debt that we can't pay, and he's restored us. 
on the basis of what he's done, not what we've done. And he enables us to do what Nehemiah does here. There's something I've been holding out, and we'll close with this. There's something in this text I've been holding out. It's something Nehemiah says to the nobles and to the officials when their sin is exposed. He also says it later about why he's able to practice what he preaches. If you look at verse 9, when he calls the nobles out, he uses this phrase. You are not walking in the fear of God. And that makes sense, right? What are they walking in? They're walking in the fear of what they're not going to have, their comforts, what they want. They're walking in the fear of not having more. And so they're willing, because they value that, to exploit even God's people. And you think about Nehemiah. I don't know if you've ever been in a position where there's somebody maybe over you or somebody wealthy or somebody influential, and you've got to do the hard thing and call them out for something or say, that's not right because they're harming the people of God. I've been in ministry a little while. Sometimes I've had to do that. And I'm often shaking, have been shaking in my boots because I fear man. I fear what they might do to me, what might, they might say about me. I fear my job in the church. The reason why he could press in with these influencers and these nobility and those who had power is because he feared God more than he feared man. And the reason he didn't take the king's allowance, the reason he didn't make a name for himself and take more land and take more things for himself that he would have been allowed as a governor. He could have gotten in the middle of the swamp and made a name for himself and provided for his family for the rest of their life. He didn't do that because God was watching. He feared God. And that's the thread that runs through this text. And so if you know Christ today and you've been forgiven, you can. You're enabled, not in your own strength, but in the strength that his grace provides to walk in the fear of God. That's your takeaway today. C3, walk in the fear of God. Let me pray.